Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author most recently of Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War, a book with which you are already no doubt familiar from the absolutely glowing review uh, by James Fallows in the New York Times and uh, the many other fine reviews and other publications not quite as prestigious as the New York Times. I, of course, am Jacob Siegel, the knocker off of tall hats, and may you continue to be a person. We have for you this week, I, I think maybe the, the most... Uh, would you say like the the work of literary criticism of certainly the first half of the 20th century, maybe the uh, maybe the whole century. One of the major ones. Yeah, T.S. Eliot's Tradition and the Individual of Talent. Um, a real a real manifesto in the sense in which we use the term, which is uh, you know a claim. On uh, a claim on the world, a claim on art, and uh, a prescriptive one. And following tradition and the individual talent, we have James Joyce's short story, A Mother from Dubliners, which is kind of a neglected story in that particular yeah. collection. And we wanted to shine some light on one of the outcasts, one of the the lesser known works of Joyce, which not to say it's like, not to say it's a, a brilliant short story that was unfairly <laughs> overlooked. I don't think that would be quite true. It probably is one of the lesser stories, but it's interesting. In way. <laughs> you know, so. Um, oh, yes. Don't miss that. <laughs> well, no, no. I, I, I think it's more interesting in a sense because, it's more interesting to talk about because it, it like all of the standard, you know, arabesque epiphanic writing stuff about Joyce and Dubliners, like all the kind of Joycean, the tropes about Joyce and Dubliners don't really apply to a mother, you know. It uh, we'll, 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 yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to. I was I was okay. So why you're, the you're, Elliot, this was your choice? I wanted to do that. Was, that was my choice. It's true. From Ulysses, yeah, but. You did want to do something. For, I feel like we need to do Ulysses on its own. Maybe that's crazy, but we should probably do Ulysses should be like a, it's both the manifesto and the um, work of art. And I thought about Ulysses a lot while I was reading, or after I should say, reading the Iliad. Um, mm. Ulysses came yeah. to mind, but why did you choose the Iliad? It was just time? Yeah, it was time to do the Iliad. I mean, I also, I like Elliot. Um, <clears throat> I've always liked Elliot. I memorized the wasteland when I was in uh, the basic school in Marine Corps. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Okay, sorry. Good stuff. To roll um, the universe into a ball. <laughs> no, to squeeze the universe <laughs> into a ball and roll it towards some overwhelming question. Um, just a little, just a little poetry I've memorized. Lest you people think Phil's the only one capable of that. 
I, I want to point out, by the way, that I am I am recording this from Tulsa, right, where I'm on book tour, and um, Jake will like cancel a recording if he has an unexpectedly wet fart, but I, you know, dear listener, heroically am like doing this while traveling, uh, keeping to the schedule manifesto. <laughs> I think that people have tremendous respect for your sacrifices as a fantastically well-paid world traveling author there there no doubt listen phil wants you to know that as he eats skinned grapes inside of his five-star hotel room from the holiday Inn express yeah that's yeah. what they call it. that's what they call it these days that's what it says on the credit card bill but no, it's true. We we all respect the the sacrifices you make, my friend. <laughs> all right. So, tradition and the individual talent. Um, when did you read this first? I think I read it as like a freshman in college. This was definitely one of those assigned, you know, class on modernism kind of essays yeah. that I remember. Yeah, reading. I, I so read it undergrad. years and years ago. And um, honestly, when I went back to it, I couldn't really remember. <laughs> all the um all the things that he'd said except for you know there's sort of there's some some lines that are more famous you know um yeah. the the uh the bit where he says um you know poetry is not a turning loose of emotion but an escape from emotion it is not the expression of personality but an escape from personality but of course only those who have personality and emotions know what it means to want to escape from those things. Yeah, yeah. that's a great line. Um, but it was great. It was great going back. Uh, going back to it. I mean, it. it um, I mean, this is this is a. Well, I'm curious what you make of it. This is an, uh, a manifesto that that very much resonates with me. So he, and it's interesting too because he's you know obviously he's a modernist writer and one of the things that he's striking striking out against is a sort of fetishization of the new right uh and the individual um you know he says you know in english writing we seldom speak of tradition right um and we have a tendency to insist when we praise a poet upon those aspects of his work in which he least resembles anyone else. In these aspects or parts of his work, we pretend to find what is individual, what is the particular, peculiar in essence of, man, of the man. We dwell with satisfaction upon the poet's difference from his predecessors, especially his immediate predecessors. We endeavor to find something that can be isolated in order to be enjoyed. And he thinks that this is like, absolutely the wrong approach to, to genius, right? Um, and he says, if we approach a poet without this prejudice, we shall often find that not only the best, but the most individual parts of his work may be those in which the dead poets, his ancestors, assert their immortality most vigorously. Um, so, and I was trying to think of a sort of good example of what he's talking about. Right. And there's a great bit from a James Wood essay on Dostoevsky, a Wood essay that I have disagreements with, uh, as I do whenever Wood writes about religious writers, which he does uh, with a lot of sensitivity. Um, 
But this, this is from the CNR days. When was this published? Uh, if this is in his um, his most recent big book of of um, okay. collected essays. So I'm not sure where it's from. Probably after the CNR days. Yeah. The really remarkable aspect of Dostoevsky's celebrated psychology is surely that it is deeply sophisticated and wise and theoretical in human terms, but can only be finally understood in religious terms. His characters, even the very godless ones like Fyodor Karamazov, live under the modeled shadow of religious categories. They are the most complicated modern secular agglomerations of unconscious motivation and conscious masquerade ever created. And yet, there is nothing in Dostoevsky and motivation which cannot also be found in the Gospels. They are humbly proud and proudly humble, Mary Magdalene. They sin in order to punish themselves and know in advance they will do so, Peter. They doubt in order to be reassured, Thomas. They betray in order to love, Peter, Judas. Above all, their actions are comprehensible only and finally as efforts to confess, to reveal themselves, to be known. Mm. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's the connection? That what is so startling and new in Dostoevsky is, is in many ways just him in a sort of new form calling up, you know, um, mm-hmm. the psychological complexity that he found in the Gospels, right? Which he, you know, kept under his pillow uh, when he was uh, in prison. Right, right. Yeah, I... Uh... So I, I found myself much more um, persuaded by the argument of the essay this time around than I had mm-hmm. 20 years ago or whenever I, I had first read it. I think at the time I was... Uh, when you were a callow youth? Yeah, when I was a callow youth, but um, uh also, when I was less able to appreciate how uh, sort of depersonalized emotional aesthetic experiences mm-hmm. work because I was too attached to my own personal experience of those experiences, which may sound yeah. like, uh, like you know, some, some kind of Zen cone or a facile paradox or something, but I, I think is uh, an accurate reflection of uh, the fact that there are there's more than one way to experience an experience or to experience an emotion. And, yeah, so I, I found it off-putting. And I also think I, think I mistook parts of the argument as being more sort of uh, as being merely canonical in a way that I took to be a kind of stiff aristocratic classicism, uh, which was a misunderstanding. And I, I was very moved by the anti-romanticism of it this time around. Um, And, uh, you know, I like a lot of romantic writing. Um, I like a, particular strains of romantic writing that I, that I find very moving and valuable. Um, but I, I, I found myself reading it this time 
and being far more sensitive to the excesses and the kind of dreary, like, stultifying excesses of the romantic personality. I mean, some of this is, it's not about being a callow youth. It's about being, uh, you know, a romantic youth. It's about being <laughs> young and on fire and, and mistaking that for being the height of human experience and the height of emotional depth and not understanding that that kind of, uh, that kind of like keen desire for and sensitivity to everything in its most kind of uh, heightened state is not necessarily the, you know, the sum of all experience. It is not, is not, uh, is not a marker of uh, depth or of, of, the seriousness of one's experience, you know, in other words, and like the, the ability to feel more deeply in that sort of, you know, somewhat cheap sense of feeling is very, was, was for me, I should say, very appealing, very overpowering, frankly, when I was younger in a way that it's not now. And also in a way that I now recognize can lead to just really tedious, you know, sort of cheaply confessional, cheaply like bleeding on the page art. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, I like, I very much like that as well. I mean, I think that sometimes we have a sort of fetishization of the production of art as being the kind of expression of pure soul. And sort of funny, when I went to, I was in teacher's college uh, to become a high school English teacher for a semester. And I was a student teaching at a public middle school. And I was in a class on the teaching of writing, like how to teach writing. And I'm quite certain that I irritated my instructor because I sort of disagreed with everything that, that she said. And, um, and at one point, you know, she's like, all right, so, you know, how do we teach our students to find their voice? Right. And, uh, annoyingly, uh, I told her, like, I don't actually believe in that, right? Like your voice. And actually Elliot was my example, like, which, what is Elliot's voice? Is it, what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? You know, is it, is it the sort of, um, cockney cadences is it you know like that poem has so yeah, many yeah. different rhythms and voices in it and joyce is the same right you know um famously the same you know just ulysses is this cacophony of different styles and they're different artistic and aesthetic approaches relying on on tools right that can be employed to communicate and those tools come from and were developed over the course of a tradition right and um and you can sort of use those two tools in new and unexpected ways to get things that become startlingly new you know in the way that uh dostoevsky uses the complex psychology of the gospels right yeah um, yeah but but what I found and what I felt very strongly was that if you teach students this sort of romantic idea, um, 
that there's something called their voice, right? Which is not um, a style that you develop over time, right? You know, like, I'm sure if you meet Cormac McCarthy, he doesn't speak like his novels, right? would be strange if he did. Um, I don't know if that's his, the expression of his innermost soul, you know, the voice that you find in Blood Meridian, um, but it is a sort of remarkable style uh, that had to be developed. But if instead of sort of teaching them, there's sort of this kind of pure expression of self um, that they need to somehow tap into, right? But there's no real guide, guide markers to that. And instead say, here are a couple of things that authors do that achieve particular effects, right? That you can use when you want to communicate something important to you. I find that students tend to thrill to that because all of a sudden they have something they can actually do, right? Um, and it was yeah, funny, I, you I mean, would think yeah. they would thrill to that. I, I, you know, I think some. I I had bad experiences as a teacher of writing. Uh, my brief uh, time doing it, I think, just because I wasn't good at. It. And so I, I had things I wanted to communicate and I found it, I, I wanted to present the kind of tools you're talking about. I found it difficult to do. I think um, some of it was, I, I picked some of the wrong texts to teach, pick stuff like, I, I'll never forget that I always, I was teaching to veterans, like uh, the kind of workshop that you and I had met in. And I, I thought, ah, they're going to love Babel. Like who wouldn't? <laughs> they didn't love Babel, and I was like, they didn't hate Babel, they just sort of didn't get it, I guess, and uh, I wasn't able to teach it properly. I don't blame them. I think it was incumbent on me to to explain to them what he was doing and to reveal, you know, the kind of depth of the simplicity or to give them an appreciation for it, to sort of cultivate them as readers. I just wasn't good at that, but um, I do think that there's a you know, a therapeutic inclination, even among the students now that needs to be overcome in some cases, because they've yeah. been trained, indoctrinated, you might say, to expect that the creation of art is not fundamentally about uh, the expression of something eternal or uh, a conversation between, you know, uh, historical entities but it's it's purely about like the revelation and perfection of self or, or the yeah or something you get as a of self yeah as a veteran writer you'll get like was this writing this healing for you right and even and, less explicitly like even among people who want who don't wouldn't want to think of it that way it's right. deeply ingrained you know that thing Which, which, by the way, writing can be, right? Like, it can be therapeutic, but that's a, that's a different thing, right? Then I think what you're, what you're doing when you're trying to, um, you know, trying to create art. So, you know, the, you could sort of, you could distill Eliot's argument here, or a, a, a prominent strain of the argument to the, the one line of the piece, which is that, what is it that... Uh, Art is about the progressive extinction of personality. I forget the exact yeah. line. So let, let's 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 get to that first off because yeah. let's talk about what he's. So he says tradition is not just sort of right, know, let me just receiving what is handed right. down. Yeah. yeah, it's the progress of an artist is a continual self sacrifice, a continual extinction of personality. Right. 
So first, he needs to talk about what, what tradition is, right? And it's not just sort of taking inherited forms in a blind way. Uh, tradition is a matter of much wider significance. It cannot be inherited. And if you want it, you must obtain it by great labor. And he says that you need to have a historical sense that compels a man to write not merely with his own generation in his bones, but with a feeling that the whole of the literature of Europe from Homer and within it, the whole of the literature of his own country has a simultaneous existence and composes a simultaneous order. This historical sense which is a sense of the timeless as well as of the temporal and of the timeless and of the temporal together is what makes a writer traditional. And it is at the same time what makes a writer more acutely conscious of his place in time, of his own contemporaneity. Um, so this, this resonates for me for sure, right? Um, I mean, on the one hand, it's a very kind of grand statement demanding, you know, extreme erudition. Um, but I do think that you need to have a sense of the tradition that you're writing from, not simply because the greatest minds of the past, you know, thousands of thousands of years have developed aesthetic tools for you to use as you attempt to um, say something new but also because you, you can't understand yourself in your present moment if you don't, um, you, you don't understand where the current arguments and ideas are coming from if you haven't sort of some sense of that tradition that you're writing. In, right? You have to make it even more basic than that in the sense that it's not just that you don't understand the arguments as conscious ideas <laughs> that you're espousing. You don't understand the meaning of the words you're using yes. to construct those arguments if you don't appreciate that the meaning of the words was formed in a particular way and that you, in using those words, are active in a process. You're not merely picking up inanimate receptacles of your own purely conscious, deliberative intention Yes. Your engagement in this conversation, your use of this language is you participating in something that was uh, formed before you were alive and in which you are taking part. Yeah. And so you don't know and, and what you don't, you're saying you fully. Yeah. Well, well, you don't know what you're saying. And what you're going to do is you think you're expressing your pure, beautiful soul. But what you're actually going to do is just spew like undigested cultural garbage back at the reader, right? You know, when I first started writing, um, was, I was back from Iraq, I was still in the Marine Corps, you know, and I was like, I, I need to, I should write a novel, right, about Iraq or whatever. It's like, I know, I'm going to write a novel about PTSD, you know, yeah. um, which would be a fine novel to write, sure. but if you do it well. Um, but <laughs> it, it was just what was sort of culturally current, right, that I thought was related to my own experience and then the process of writing and sort of more deeply engaging with the tradition that I was writing in and the cultural conversation allowed me to start seeing uh, what that some of the things that I thought were my own unique and startling observations were really just sort of you know prepackaged ideas um so, uh, yeah. kind of cultural flotsam that it sort of wandered into my brain. Elliot never quite puts it this way, but one way 
to understand. You know, I don't fully when I say that I'm more moved by it, and then I and I shouldn't just say more moved than it was when I read this the first time. I found parts of this very, um, very compelling and to be you know, sort of like verities about art. Like, I think this holds up other parts yeah. that I thought are, you know, overstated. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that the extinction of a personality is either a achievable or a, a worthy goal. But I do think that the, if you understand this, not just as a statement about art, but as a statement precisely in reaction to the preceding generations are and to the excesses of the kind of, and you know, the, the uh, Elliot specifically rebuts the famous saying uh, about emotion recollected in tranquility, right? Well, that's from a Wordsworth essay. Um, and so this is very deliberately a response to the kind of excesses of the temperamental romantics. But to your point, you know, the irony is that in the attempt to be an individual of the highest order and to to be very personality driven in one's writing, that's when you end up producing the cultural flotsam. That's like, it's the more intent you are on expressing the individual genius of your own personality, the more likely you are to regurgitate uh, the most obvious sort of half digested cultural flotsam, you know, and it's only by, removing yourself a bit from that not entirely right i don't think the extinction of the person i think elliot goes too far but you have to you have to sort of pull back inside of yourself a bit and understand where your own ideas are coming from and and where your desires to write about certain things are coming from and it it requires a bit of genuine asceticism in that sense there's there's a great I just started um George Keenan's sketches from a life. Hmm. Um Keenan the, the sort of, you know, great diplomat with the long telegram and so on, very important for kind of Cold War history. Brilliant and, uh expositor of the growth of the security state. Uh doesn't hmm. get enough credit for how much he saw coming in terms of the uh dangers of a, a bureaucracy driven by secrets. So in his introduction to Sketches of a Life, which is these sort of sketches of his travels uh, that he made, he's talking about sort of three different types of reactions that he's felt the urge from time to time to put on paper. The first are intimate reactions, right? Concerned with intense aspects of the involvement of the self or with others, which he, for various reasons, feels like he can't, isn't really good at, right? I preferred, I thought, to leave all this to the novelist or the poet, whose greater brutality in the one case and more natural use of the elusive rather than of the explicit in the other permitted a bolder penetration to these dangerous premises. I like that bit about the, the brutality of the novelist. Mm. And then there's sort of intellectual reactions, which he, he'd done a lot of history, social and political analysis, etc. Um, and then the third category of writing is what he's trying to do. Um, operates in the no man's land between these two others, borrowing a bit from both, contributing a bit to both, it might be described as the effort to depict isolated bits of reality casually observed in a manner that while as faithful as possible to the features of the scene observed also reveals something of its inner meaning. Something of this sort is of course, essentially what takes place in the more naturalistic of the visual arts, where again, 
The object is not one of the artist's own creation, but is rather an existing external reality in the description and critical interpretation of which the artist expresses things he could never have expressed in direct assertion. Mm. Um, and he's comparing this to this book by Alphonse Paquet, the Frankfurter Zeitung of the day, um, the book of travelogues, uh, where he says, in Paquet's sketches, the writer was not the center of attention. He was there, of course. How could he not be? He supplied the eye, the heart, the perspective. His perceptions were the prism through which all things were apprehended and understood. Without him, the image could not have existed. But that was all he was. The further details of his person were irrelevant. And that strikes me as a, a somewhat different um, weight of emphasis than the Eliot, right? The Eliot has this sort of obliteration, right? Um, where the, 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 the poet's mind is in fact a receptacle for, this, for seizing and storing up numberless feelings, phrases, images, which remain there until all the particles form a new compound or pre present together. Um, and, and he actually uses like a chemistry as, a, as right. an example. So that's the central analogy for him is that yeah. the artist, the artist you know, is the catalytic agent taking these elements of tradition and the new and yeah. pro providing the catalyst that fuses something new, which is not an expression of themselves. They are, as he says, the medium through which this occurs. Yeah. Versus the sort of the eye, the heart, the perspective, where it's sort of you very much are perceiving through through the artist, right? The, 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 the personality is all over the place, right? I mean, you know, think of the difference between this and that Wolf essay um, on the essay yeah, yeah, that we yeah, discussed, yeah, where it's about yeah. being in conversation. And I think that, that that kind of warmth, or even if it's not warmth, it can be harsh sometimes, but that's not, intimacy. you know, uh, intimacy, right? Encounter with, um, you know, the with the writer. I mean, even a writer whose whole sort of thing is cold objectivity. If you know, think about like Naipaul, right? Naipaul's personality is all over his essays and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and writing yeah. uh, even when he's barely present, right? Um, and that that's the engagement with that kind of way of seeing is what I think is is so valuable. It's not just kind of you know, you have different molecules of <laughs> from the cultural tradition that kind of get re you know reformed in new ways, like a chemical reaction. Well, it seems like Ulysses it has to be a very major influence on this. I mean, I was thinking about Joyce, like I was saying, as I was reading this. When reading when was this written? Uh, that's a good question. Nineteen uh, fifteen. 1915. Yeah. So when is no 1919. Uh, looking at Ulysses. Huh? Originally published December 1920. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Too early for it. Oh wow. Wow. Because when I think of Ulysses, I you know as. What is distinctive about it, aside from the quality of the language, what's distinctive about its approach to literature in part? It's, you know, Joyce is just cycling through every previously existing literary form. You know, it's like right. 
Well, that's why I wanted to do Oxen of the Sun in particular. I know, I know, I understand. All, All of literature in conversation with itself in a kind of like uh, uh, a theater of prose that, you know, there are, there are personalities inside Ulysses, but none of them are Joyce's in any clear, obvious sense. Um, And some of them aren't even personalities exactly, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm surprised. I had I was sure just from reading this that um, he would have been influenced by Ulysses, but they they are both partaking, I think, in a a similar uh, opportunity that is partly a, a function of technological medium. You know, the ability to sort of instantaneously or semi-instantaneously span through centuries uh, of, of literature and to have like all of these different mediums of print available and to just be surrounded by both books and newspapers in a way that was still fairly new. You know, to have that many newspapers available, to have that many books available, to be so closely and easily in contact with that many different uh, forms of European literature and some non-European literature still fairly new and must have been, as were other industrial forces at the time, depersonalizing in some ways. And one reaction to that was to accentuate the elements of romanticism through consciousness rather than through the personality, you know, and you get the kind of existentialist, you get the uh, existentialist modernism uh, and other kinds of modernism that are foregrounding the fragmentation and the kind of uh, perceptual experiences of the consciousness. And Joyce does some of that, but in Joyce it, it doesn't feel personal, right? It doesn't feel uh, it, you know, it doesn't feel like it's something that's happening to a single mind, uh, it feels like a kind of a, a cosmos, a, a literary cosmos, an experiential cosmos. Um, but then the other person who I thought of on the other side of it was Kundera. And, mm. you know, in, in that trilogy of uh, works of criticism that starts with the art of the novel, one of which we discussed on a Patreon episode here, Kundera also has the idea of the novel specifically. He's not talking about poetry, but of all European novels as being in conversation with one another. You know, he traces the development of certain, you know, to your point, Phil, about certain tools like, uh, you know, the when when does the novel first become capable of expressing a kind of wry self-awareness? Very early, as it turns right. out, you know, like from Cervantes, actually, you know, but the, but he's tracing this development of the novel, this development of different modes of expression, which is not the result of something being born ex nihilo in the romantic sense from the artist, right, sprung from their brow spontaneously. What Kundera is showing is that it's all the not of the European novel specifically he's talking about sort of 
in conversation, one novel in conversation with another, another novel that produces these advances that aren't just, uh, they, they don't exist to, to, as valedictory as to the genius of the individual novelist, but as advances in this kind of chain, this, this not yet broken chain, hopefully unbroken chain of uh, European literature. And, but in the Kandera version, it's very much personality driven insofar as it's the novelists in conversation, not just the novels in conversation. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know the, the, there's a Jean Paul's a romantic poet. German romantic poet described books as thick letters to friends, mm. right? And I like that notion of of it being in conversation, right? That that every it's a sort of ongoing conversation instead of these kind of like uh, perfect ascetic objects that you know you just kind of admire. Rather, books are just part of kind of rough and tumble and cacophonous and riotous conversation across the centuries. And, you know, one of the points that Eliot makes is that when a new work of art is created, uh, something happens simultaneously to all the works of art, which proceed right, the existing right. monuments form an ideal order among themselves, which is modified by the introduction of the new, the really new work of art among them. And, and that's true, right? You don't, <clears throat> you do not read uh, it's not just that you don't read the Iliad the way that, you know, a classical Greek would, right? Um, but rather, you, you wouldn't even want to. Um, you read the Iliad the way somebody whose, you know, culture has been informed by responses to and engagements with the Iliad um, over the course of centuries. And there's mm -hmm. a kind of uh, consciousness of the conversation and what different things are doing within the conversation, right. which is modified by the truly great new works, right? Right. I'll give you a, a very immediate example. The past right? should be altered by the present as much as the present is directed by the past. Yeah. I Unavoidably, I think, if you're yes. receptive to it. So I went and reread Balzac. I reread some Balzac after I had been on a, a Welbeck kick years ago. Yeah. And it was just a different experience. It was a different text. The Balzac yeah. for me was changed by the reading mm -hmm. of Welbeck. And in a, in a, so that was my experience as an individual reader. But if you also understand canonical texts to have kind of uh, meta, uh, meta personal interpretations of canonical texts sort of, exude a cultural level meaning the, the ways in yeah. which not only that they're understood by the readership broadly but that their their meaning then exerts its own kind of cultural influence back into the community of readers when it changes on that level when a new so a new work of art enters tradition and revises the works before it by entering into conversation with them. That's not a purely uh, abstract or ethereal phenomenon that's taking place. It's something that has uh, an actual impact on 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 
uh, you know, on beliefs, on social relations, on our understanding of essential human activities. So, you know, when classic, uh, a, a, when the Iliad is revised, right, by a new work about the meaning of war, let's say, or the experience of war, um, that affects how we understand what war is. It affects the the kind of relationship between uh, between you know the, the the readership generally and even outside of the readership. It, it affects the it, it just affects the the cultural meaning and currency of uh, of the subjects of the art. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I, you know, those those quibbles aside, um, I love this. I love this, and I think that it's I think that it's just correct, right? In terms of you know what art is doing and and, and how it functions and how um, how essential that sort of that history is. I mean, the, the end of the the end of it. Um, uh, says the poet cannot reach this impersonality without surrendering himself wholly to the work to be done and he is not likely to know what is to be done unless he lives in what is not merely the present but the present moment of the past unless he is conscious not of what is dead but of what is already living yeah i i again i resist the uh, necessity of extinguishing the yes, personality entirely and yeah. of extinguishing the individual as a a conscious agent, but the the need to restrain the passions of the individual, the need to restrain the kind of um, ego and personality driven uh, aspects of feeling for a colder kind of feeling, for a a feeling that is um, less immediate, less personalized and that you know it catches the light differently that has a different aesthetic effect is how, how does this how does this fit you're talking about a colder emotion with yeah. the uh, the long history of the rant in literature right as a form hmm. i mean you know i think of like philip roth has some just glorious rants and obviously they're not they're not the pure expression of the soul there's you know there's a tradition that he's operating in all these other things, but I mean, God, there's so much that seems to be. Of, I, I don't get that kind of. That's like the best and, part of personality, right? Is the is the, the rant, rant? You would say the that. quibble, <laughs> the aside, you know, yeah. the uh, like the body joke, you know, like listen. People claim that there are funny parts of the wasteland. I mean, that's. I don't know what kind of sense of humor you have to have to find. I, I can, uh, look, the, uh, I, I'm trying to think of, of how to do the wasteland justice in the sense that, you know, there is a real newness to the wasteland, right? To the subject matter. And this is where I think of Eliot, Ulysses and, and the commonality in the sense that, you know, Eliot is trying to like run through pop cultural forms yeah. archaic literary devices to 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 enter them in as the catalytic catalytic agent in an, in a new aesthetic compound in a way that 
is nothing short of revelatory and brilliantly successful, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and there's some a genuine, you know, kind of, you can, when you develop a deeper understanding of the, the, frame, the, the references, you know, there's like real kind of pop cultural elements and jazz and uh, <clears throat> Sunday cartoons, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not funny. You know, and, no. and humor is. Uh, what, what are people even saying? I mean, like the teeth bit and the cockney. I have no idea, but the cockney certainly. Uh, you know, you know, it's this like, I, I and I, I maybe I'm being a a bit unfair. Maybe it's more like comic in the same way that he that Elliot is talking about emotion you know maybe it's a you know a higher level of comedy but to me i don't want sexual partner maybe i don't know uh, i don't i'm not interested in uh, i'm not interested in in uh eternal ethereal comedies or or uh (laughs) canonical you know i want like dumb jokes are also good and yes and uh and the human um the human personality is a big part of that you know i i would say one last thing in like a, in a structural yeah. sense in terms of how composition works thinking about how do you teach these how do you teach writing and, and how does writing actually work you know what both elliot and, and joyce are doing elliot more dramatically in some ways you know ulysses is obviously um hardly a, a subtle work in its formal experimentation, but, but Joyce is bringing together these different uh, cultural artifacts and cultural modes and sort of turning them into something new that has its own aesthetic unity. And it's supposed to kind of cover high and low and cover the 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 prosaic and and the uh maybe sublime is too much maybe it's not but um you know because i think he's trying to eschew metaphysics but but it, where, where it doesn't really move much is in like formal register you know there's not a lot of variation in the there's variation in the kind of um poetic expression there's variation in the formal quality the the uh, formal construction of the line, but there's not like he doesn't allow himself. Uh, he doesn't allow himself a, a lesser line into the poems, mm-hmm. or, a, or a, a, you know, even where the diction moves, the kind of unity of aesthetic effect in the poetic register is unbroken. And if there's a lower diction, the lower diction is incorporated in such a way as to make it fully a part of this unified uh, aesthetic effect. That can be limited. You know, it's, uh, there is something. The poet doesn't descend into the mud. Yeah. Well, it doesn't descend into but the poet doesn't give the reader a break, is how I would say it, because I think he would say that he does descend into the mud. I think I think it's like a descent into the mud that that never uh, allows for the relief of like sinking one's feet into the mud. Really, you know, it's it's <laughs> yeah. mud as a kind of abstraction that's entered into this larger aesthetic unity. 
But what I'm saying is from the perspective of the reader for a second, leaving aside what makes for ideal poetry in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the, in the sense in which Eliot means it for the reader, there can be something enjoyable and relieving about the pressure letting up for moments in the kind of the intensity of the poetic grammar or the intensity of the, the, the register, like there can be a relief in breaking from that. And you get that relief far more because personalities move, right? They, you're up, you're down, you know, and you get some variation and some relief through the experience of the human personality. Whereas if you're totally depersonalized and it's this monument of unbroken right. <laughs> monument of aesthetic effect. There's something implacable about that. There's, there's a, there was a review of Derek Walcott's Omeros. Um, one of the reviewers said something along the lines of, there's something wearying about making your way through an unbroken strand of rubies. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. I felt that way when I was in, uh, when I was in Rome years ago. I was like... Does it all need to be this uh, this beautiful? Like, does it all? Need, you know, I, I was going through these parts of Rome where it was just one gilded space after another, and I and I started to feel. Um, I, I then saw other parts of Rome that that definitely offered relief, but it it started to like wear me down. You know, it was too much. <laughs> yeah. Shall we move oh, on to the Joyce? Let's do the Joyce. All right, now you're going to have to talk about this since you were so keen to do a mother. Um, okay, well, Wait, you, were, look, you were the one who picked it. It's true, it's true. You've got me. I think that I had actually read The Dead before I read Doublers. I'm pretty sure the first thing I read was The Dead um, before I read the full collection. But I just remember from my, my earliest experiences of it that... Um, this story was considered one of the lesser stories. Yes, yes, it is. And so I thought it would be interesting to revisit in part for that reason, because when you go to the lesser stuff, you can see the writer at work more in a Mm -hmm. way, like uh, to to Elliot's point, because one thing we didn't really touch on, but that was probably implicit in what we're saying is, you know, for Elliot, this, this distinction between the poet and the poem very important and Eliot wants to again in response to a preceding literary movement he wants to shift the emphasis entirely away from the biographical and from the cult of personality of the poet and entirely on to the you know the autonomous textual poem itself and when you go to a great writer's lesser works I think it can be very useful to see the writer at work, how they're yeah. trying to bridge something. And, and it's, almost, it's easier to see because you can see the seams when they don't quite achieve it or they're not aiming quite as high. And I did feel that was the case here. I, so I like this story actually quite a bit. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because you, you're beginning by talking the story down. I had gone into this and maybe it was because I went into it with low expect- expectations because I didn't read Dubliners the way you did. I read Dubliners the first time and there were stories that I liked in it very much, but it was sort of like, you know, um, my experience of it the first time I read it was sort of one story of 
paralysis after another. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, I get it, Joyce. Like, you're not the biggest on, like, you know, life in Dublin. And then you read The Dead, and it's just this, you know, extraordinary uh, work right. of genius. And um, where the effect of reading The Dead is, I think, magnified by... <laughs> perhaps the frustration uh, that a reader like me might encounter, you know, when you read the, the umpteenth story of paralysis and then you get to the dead and it's just as, I mean, you know, he unleashes more of, of, of his sort of poetic range really. Um, and, uh, and it's just absolutely thrilling to read. So I went back to this thinking like, okay, you know, Jake definitely picked, stories that I hardly remember the once I, I did remember once I got into it. And so I was expecting to be bored <laughs> and I liked it. Like at the end of the day, he's still freaking Joyce, right? He's still Joyce, so, man. There's no denying it. Right. I mean, some of these descriptions, right? Like the husband, he was much older than she, his conversation, which was serious, took place at intervals in his great brown beard. Uh, you, know? A great line. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. you know, there's just, um, and, and Miss Kearney, she sat amid the chilly circle of her accomplishments, waiting for some suitor to brave it and offer her a brilliant life. So I actually, I liked the first third of the story from which you've drawn mm-hmm. both of those lines. I, I thought that was the strongest. To give a yeah. very quick overview, and I, there's no point here in like doing a real synopsis, but basically it concerns uh, this woman, her married name is Miss Kearney, who... Um, is a sort of tightly coiled, uh, ivory mannered, I think is the, the line mm-hmm. at one point, uh, creature who is approaching an age where other people early in the story is approaching an age where the other girls are, are starting to talk that she might be a spinster. So she gets married at the right time, but is then a good wife when she gets married yeah. in a, in a kind of, uh, pious, uh, uh, you know, she performs her wifely duties well. She has a daughter. She's, you know, it's a it's a story of a kind of uh, like uh, social expectations and and uh, class expectations and a kind of performance of uh, of bourgeois respectability that, in this case, also involves. Mm-hmm the combination of sort of cosmopolitanism and Irish nationalism as they were then uh, right. so intersecting one in Dublin. One of the important things about the story, I mean, when people talk about the story, they often talk about her as, as kind of like the villain of the story, right? Because this is Irish. Yeah, in some of the criticism, right? Mm. Um, which I think is off. <clears throat> um, there's this Irish revival movement and her daughter plays the piano. Um, uh and so she she gets invested. And you sort of have a sense that Miss Kearney is is more impressive than those around her, right? Um, right. She, but there's no outlet for her. Yes, exactly. And so then, when this uh, Irish revival thing comes along, uh, she's going to have her daughter get into it, and it will be it'll be a place for her daughter to perform. It will be. Um, It'll, be, it'll just be something, some, <laughs> something that that she can reach for, right beyond the the, the confines of life. And the and the guy who's setting it up, Miss Miss uh, Mister Hollahan, 
uh, doesn't know what he's doing. He was a novice in such delicate matters as the wording of bills and the disposing of items for a program. Mrs. Kearney helped him. She had tact. She knew what artistes should go into capitals and what artistes should go into small type, right? And then uh, he calls on her every day. She was invariably friendly and advising, homely in fact. She pushed the decanter towards him saying, now help yourself, Mr. Hollihan. And while he was helping himself, she said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of it. Right. Um, I think you have it exactly right. She's uh, very buttoned up and sort of uh, tightly wound, but also clearly very capable. But has nowhere really to express these talents outside of a kind of... uh, a, a formal, like, and micromanaged approach to um, the social v- environment around her that can't be especially pleasant for the people she's interacting with. But then again, the people she's interacting with appear to be dopes, you know? And right. so so she's stepping in to fill a role that, that probably does need to be filled, and these people don't seem especially impressive. Um but, you know, you don't get any sense of, uh, like, you get a real sense of of uh, personality with her and with some of the other characters and a conflict of personality, a personality that's driven by its unresolved tensions as much as by its desires or its intentions. Um, but, but like, you don't... Uh, you don't get, except by implication, like, a sense of like what her imaginative life is like. You know, yeah. there, there's not there's not a a moment of uh, sublimity or something like that where she's allowed to uh, express her better self. It's all sort of a series of um, grudges and um, so, you know, somewhat grubby expectations more or less but no well, what, less, happens, I, what happens is the thing that I she dislike her. turns out to be turns out to fail right so when the concert comes nobody really shows up the the first night uh, a lot of the artists aren't good artists the artists right and so the committee says you know it was a mistake mistake arranging for four concerts four was too many and the artists said mrs kearney of course, they're doing their best, but really, they are not good, right? So, um, and, you know, her disappointment is about the quality, right? And the committee's disappointment is about the number of people who came. And so they decide to cut the number of concerts, but she had signed a contract for her daughter that's, that was for four concerts. She was going to be paid for four con- uh, uh, concerts. And at that point, she becomes fixated on the contract, right? And... You know, that doesn't alter the contract. The contract was for four concerts. She wants her daughter to be paid. Um, And the rest of the story becomes not about art or the Irish revival movement or any any of the things that have gotten her interested in this in the first place. It becomes narrowly about the terms of the contract and her trying to badger them into living up to the terms of the contract and paying her daughter and suggesting that her daughter's not going to go on stage if they don't pay her and the whole thing sort right. of falls apart, right? And becomes petty and uh, tawdry and she humiliates herself yeah, and yeah. aware of it. 
Yeah, petty, but worse than petty, right? Humiliating for her, increasingly humiliating for her the more she digs in her heels and turns it into a matter of principle in a way where she's not necessarily wrong, clearly, but has violated decorum, has come across as too stubborn, too intransigent, um, and too sort of focused on uh, too focused on on her own kind of like uh, pig-headed insistence on winning this particular battle rather than arriving at a solution that would actually best serve her, her daughter, the rest of the people involved. Um, but I mean, leave aside like the plot, right? Because who cares, frankly? Like it's not one of the uh, stories in Dubliners that has you know, a plot that really stands up to retelling or inspection. I mean, it's, it's about the, it's about the characters and the, the quality of the characterization and of the writing and, and the way that, you know, with very minimal, if you think about the, uh, the husband, right? Mr. Kearney, very little is said about it. Right, you get that uh, he talks through his big brown beard. There's a memorable scene at the end where basically she's like going on and insisting on what's right, and he's supposedly there to back her up, but says nothing. You know, so it's this great scene where, like, you you know, it's an interesting narrative. Uh, the the authorial voice here is interesting because it's not omniscient and is actually, you can see missing certain things. It's limited. Like the perspective of the narrator is actually limited and is sometimes misleading in ways that create Mm -hmm. ironical effect. Like here, where you've been led to believe that the husband is there to be the enforcer of the law. Like, you know, Miss Kearney has failed to secure the payments and now the husband is there and he's going to, he's going to stand up for her. And you think that you're being told that in an authoritative way, but when the actual right. scene rolls around and he's just like ponderously scratching his beard and very obviously <laughs> sheepish next to her, you then read back into the story and say, okay, wait, who was it who told me that he was there to back her up? If it wasn't the omniscient author who knows like who actually was that. Right. And there are a few different places in the story, like uh, here I'm, I marked one down. But, but, and by the way, there's a great bit yeah. in the husband. <clears throat> she respected her husband ah, in that, the yeah. same way as she respected the general post office, as something large, secure, and fixed. And though she knew the small number of his talents, she appreciated his abstract value as a male. Um, yes, yes. And then the next line to, to the thing I was just saying is she was glad that he had suggested coming with her. She thought her plans over. And and so then after you understand how it goes down, you, you read back into that and you say she was glad he had suggested coming with her. And you, he didn't suggest going with her. She was <laughs> like, you're coming with me, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and he scratched his chin and said, yes, dear, and went along because he knows what's good for him. Um, but I like I I read that and I thought to myself, you could read that as like being written only at her expense, right? That she appreciated his abstract value as a male. Certainly, it's not just that you could read that as a kind of indictment of her shallowness or her unfeelingness. That's an no, aspect. That's not how I read that at all. 
but there's another way in which like that is comforting right like the abstract maleness of a husband i'm sure is comforting and the same with the abstract femaleness of a wife can be comforting that is right, an also actual in terms of comfort the 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 role that he plays in society i mean part of part of this is is she should be running this right but she's not right yes, and, and yes, there's yes. a degree to which this is unfair this undoubtedly has to do with her gender right yes. and and that abstract value as a male is part of it right he's not actually good for anything but because he's a man right there there are things that she can get that can only be leveraged through him right and yeah yeah yes yeah yeah, she knew the small number of his talents, right? Yeah. And though she knew the small number of his talents, she appreciated his abstract value as a male. And I, I, I mean, all the, by all, all yeah. of the male characters are buffoon. I mean, like Holland they're dope. The they're one I after another are dope. Mister, yeah. Mister O'Madden Burke, right? A suave elderly man who balanced his imposing body when it rests upon a large silk umbrella. His magniloquent Western name was the Moral Umbrella upon which he balanced the fine problem of his finances. He was widely respected. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very effective uh, authorial technique in that it's like sometimes there are things concealed from it. Other times it's right. I mean, it's a very kind of... uh, um, it's not rigid. It seems to take on different aspects at different points in the story. Um, so what does this have to do with Elliot? Why did you want to do this and Elliot? Why did I want to do this and Elliot? I th- was thinking of Joyce in relation to this Elliot in particular. And this is, this is a story that works well insofar as, you know, there is the Joycean anti-personality writing of which yeah. the, you know, abstruse and, and somewhat inscrutable Finnegan's Wake is the, uh, you know, it, I, I guess there's an argument that uh, the man in the Macintosh is like, that there is a personality, but it's so cryptic and occluded that, you know, it requires like a level of uh, uh, Kabbalistic exegesis to get to it. But, let's just say in general that when you think of Joyce or when you read Joyce, you can read him in either the, the Dubliners personality driven way or more, there's more personality in Dubliners certainly. And then in Ulysses, I I think of it as being um, depersonalized is not right, but uh, a novel in converse, a, a novel containing all of history in conversation itself so right. it's like it's it's like the Elliot idea of tradition condensed into a single novel that contains all of yeah. European literary history and so I was just thinking of them together in that way and then I don't know like I, I like I said I th- it was it was useful for me to go back and read this because I think unlike other stories in Dubliners leaving aside the dead which is just you know so magnificent that um it's kind of hard to to pick apart in the same way. You get so mm-hmm. overtaken by its aesthetic effects that it, you're not really interested in like peeling back the uh, or opening up the hood and looking underneath. In the same way, it's just easier for me to see 
how he's doing what he's doing. One, one does not probe God's judgments with one's dirty fingers. Who said that? Some saint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, it makes sense, and yeah, I mean it. It fits here, right? I mean, you do you get like overawed by something like the dead? It just feels like mm-hmm. uh, it's just more difficult to do, also because there are. You, you know what? I'll put it to you this way, also. Like, I can easily imagine. I can easily imagine coming up with these general characters and then arranging. Them. I'm not saying I could write the story that Joyce has written, but I can imagine conceiving of essentially this story with basically these characters and arranging them in more or less this way. You know, it doesn't require an identification with God to, to imagine how a human being yeah. might have created this. Right? I, the yeah. same is not true of the dead, for instance. Um, so I thought it was interesting to talk about it that way. And I also... I enjoy I enjoy reading it as a story. Like it's entertaining. I like uh, I do like stories where like the idiots don't know they're idiots. I'm often entertained yeah. by that. So uh, yeah, so that's so just like how and this is something I always appreciate with Joyce how enmeshed he is in very specific contemporary situation, right? Yeah, yeah, and so. You know, that's a piece of it, right? You know, Elliot's talking about being in conversation with tradition, but if you're in conversation with tradition, that's when you're really able to be utterly contemporary, right? Like you understand the forms that are informing contemporary life, and then you can actually write about it in a unique way and be sort of, um, you know, this is not like, look, you read Elliot and just the tradition is, is, bursting all over the place, right? You know, he's, he's quoting everybody, so you can't miss it. This, the references are contemporary references, right? So you're, he's not, it's not like you're, you're reading this and there are all of these callbacks to classical literature, right? Um, in the way that like, you know, when you're reading Ulysses, um, that's much more obvious, right? Uh, you know, different sources that he's drawing in. He's having, you know, discussions of Shakespeare and imitating, you know, English prose styles across the centuries and so on. Um, and yet it's, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the same thing that goes into creating, creating something like this, right? Like that, that sort of preparatory work needs to be done in order to, in order to speak to the present moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the in, one of the interesting kind of uh, contextual details here is that the the use or the meaning of Irish nationalism in the context of these sort of petite bourgeois squabbles between like Dublin's not quite cultural elite, right? Because these people participating in this concert are decidedly not members of the uh, cultural elite, right? They're not like, the, the, there's the one uh, what is he, he's a soprano, he's a, one of the singers who you're told yeah. is like the son of a milkman or something like that, I can't remember uh, might be, or no, it was maybe he didn't drink milk, anyway, the point of the story is that 
he's like a working class kid who learned how to sing and uh, right. made the mistake when he was singing of wiping his nose with his shirt sleeve. You know, a sort of <laughs> unforgivably uncouth thing to do, which limited his ability to ascend um, despite his talents as a singer. And yeah, there are these interesting contemporaneous details. And I, I, f- I found like, because I guess in my imagination, I had, because I think of Irish nationalism as like a romantic national movement, I think of it as being outside the petty uh, concerns of like status squabbling, petit bourgeois, social class. Well, this is the way when we had uh, Michael Brennan Doherty on, right? Talking about, you know, his very romantic attachment to the Irish national move, nationalist movement. Which is exactly the kind of thing, you know, that makes sense. Like if you're born in America, hundred, you know, 80 years after the fact, right? Right. But if you were in Ireland in 1915, they were, I'm sure it was all bound up together. You know, like uh, in some ways it was a, a middle class, uh, you know, a middle class kind of signaling thing or, or a middle class identity. I should not to make it sound shallow in terms of signaling, but it wasn't just um, heroic revolutionaries, right? It wasn't just austere ascetics. It was also like Miss Kearney's and her daughters who was learning to play the piano and also learning Irish, learning French and Irish, right? The, the cosmopolitan language and the national language at the same time. Yeah, the um, there's a great bit in in Vasily Grossman um, where you know he's talking about um, you know this one woman who sort of sees only like the petty motiva- motivations of people and how like her type years later, right after the Battle of Stalingrad, will be won. You know, we'll, we'll sort of look back and think of them as as uh, as supermen. You know, a time of greater people, and you know, we'll sort of look upon the people in the present day and only see their sort of you know their pettiness and squabbles. And he's like, you know, but like the salvation, you know, if there's any hope for humankind, it's that you know it's not just heroes who sort of love liberty and their homeland and can be pressed to uncommon acts and achieve in, incredible things, but the pettiness and the silly, like the pettiness like is always present in these like sort of uh, as a part of these movements. Right. Um, right. I, right. I, it, it's, it's, it's not a, um, <laughs> I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is it's not like the, the romantic vision isn't capturing something true uh, or is that the sort of, you know, pettiness and silliness of some of the lesser efforts in this, you know, in this regard are, are utterly debased and not actually reaching towards something. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the the kind of tragedy of this story is that in her disappointment, she stultifies her daughter's attempt to, to create any kind of art. Right. I mean, like there's a social humiliation that happens and, you know, Mr. Hallahan is done with her, but, but we don't care that much about the social humiliation that she undergoes, particularly not among these people who are buffoons. Right. And who we don't don't respect, but that that she got captured by the the pettiness and the smallness, and not just that nothing was sort of greater was to be reached for by her, but but her daughter is sort of deprived of a chance. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, Phil, my friend. Yeah. You there? I'm here. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something. No, no, no. I, I just, I want to thank you on behalf of all listeners who <laughs> understand how hard this has been for you and, and uh, the sacrifices you make. Um, I can only say that being in a hotel in a distant city sounds really, really difficult compared to being in a house with two children in a strange country <laughs> who just got off of a 14-hour flight and are out of their minds. Uh, you, you, you've been stewing on that for a while. I had an hour and a half to think about it. <laughs> like, I wrote it down. I workshopped it. Uh, okay, good stuff, my friend. Hey, uh, listeners, you must go out and buy Phil's new book which is um, fantastic. Don't trust me. Trust James Fallows. I don't say trust him because he's smarter or better than me. He's not. Uh, but he's another person. So it's it's you should trust him because um, he's in the New York Times. And who doesn't trust the New York Times? But uh, really get, uh, get Phil's new book. And uh, also tune in. We've got uh, new installments coming soon with James Poulos, the author of Human Forever, and the great Armand White, uh, preeminent film critic of our time, and uh, a truly original thinker and character. So, Oh, and a uh, special Patreon episode where I will be talking to Alex Brooklyn, our former producer, about John Cassavetti's films. Hopefully, Phil, you'll get to see some Cassavetti's before then and can join in. But we're going to do a uh, Cassavetti's installment. So all of that coming soon. And, uh, yeah, continue to be people out here. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>